This is Insight with Roz, a radio broadcast brought to you on podcast by I'mJustSaying.com, independent of the good opinion of others. Hello, I'm Roz. Thanks for joining me on Insight, where we look at life in 3D and tackle the tough topics, all through the prism of hood feminism. In the 21st century, the last place you may want to be is in the church, because it doesn't reflect 21st century life. But you might want to revisit that after hearing from my guest, Reverend Canon Dr. Rachel Mann, who certainly had a profound effect on me. Warm, witty, wise and winning, Reverend Canon Rachel Mann is a theologian with a heart and the trials to prove it. Why Jesus? Join us and see, right here on Insight. Thank you so much, Reverend Callan, Dr. Rachel Mann, for joining me here on Insight, where we look at life in 3D and tackle the tough topics. And of course, I'm coming from the perspective of a hood feminist. So it was most interesting to hear your comments whilst I attended General Synod to do a representation on behalf of victim survivors. And it struck me that we talk about the church in the 21st century and not really meshing with people. And I heard some of the things you said and I thought, this is a woman of our times. So I want to explore some of those views with you with a few questions unusually for me from guests. But before we even get there, who are you and what do you do? Um, well, thanks, Ros. I mean, it's worth saying, and I, this isn't a joke uh, as such, but, you know, I have a tattoo on my right arm that is the Latin for know yourself. Um, and I have it there to try and remind myself to remember who I am because I spend a lot of time being pulled in so many different directions. I'm not quite sure who I am, Ros, um, but I suppose here's some headlines. So... Uh, I'm Rachel Mann. I'm a parish priest in Manchester, in the Church of England. Um, I also have some extra responsibilities. So I'm an area dean. Um, I'm a member of General Synod. Uh, I'm a writer. So I've written 11 books so far in a whole variety of different genres. So I've published poetry, theology, memoir, my latest book, The Gospel of Eve, is a novel. Um, I guess what a lot of people know me for most is as uh, a feminist slash queer theologian um, and as one of uh, a handful of out trans women in the Church of England. So I um, transitioned from male to female when I was 22. Um, I'm 50 now. Um, as you can imagine, that's one heck of a journey to undertake. Um, and I don't mind talking about that stuff, should you so wish, uh, Roz, but it is worth, you know, saying that it's just part of my story that I've transitioned and... Um, and it's something that I've been thinking about and reflecting on since I was about four years old, you know, and it's been part of my story since a very early age. 
Um, in terms of, you know, you might be thinking, gosh, I hadn't seen that one coming. Um, but it's one of the things that sometimes shocks people is when, you know, in LGBTQIA circles, they'll say, oh, Rachel, you know, we fully accept you as an out queer woman. Uh, and then they say, but surely the church can't cope with that. Um, and I have to say, well, some bits of the church can't. And it has been a journey and it's still an ongoing journey for the church. And, you know, here we come to the pay dirt. And I'm going to shut up in a second and let you come back in, uh, Ros. Is that I have become increasingly convinced that one of the points of issue in the church when it comes to working with survivors with victims with people living with trauma um when it comes to how it struggles so often to celebrate difference so anyone who doesn't fit the white middle class male picture this is this is one of those kind of intersections between safeguarding and to do with acceptance of people's sexualities and gender identities and very particularly as well to do with a kind of fetishization of whiteness as well because you know for me whiteness isn't just about a, a kind of the coding of someone's skin it's about a whole kind of position it's a whole way of reading the world that then basically you know you have a small group of people who are at the top and then there's the rest of us who don't fit that and therefore we get treated as second raters. Um, I don't think that's what the church should be about. I think at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of, of, of the Bible, actually, is this call to, to justice and God's mercy and God's love. I'm going to stop you there because we're going to come back on some of this. But the only thing you said that shocked me is your age. So I want to know what are you on is it the cream or is it some kind of cosmetic surgery you're lying <laughs> you, you are not 50 i uh, well uh, thanks i mean i'll take that i'll take that Ros. Uh, i am unfortunately and here's the thing that you know another dimension of my life that in some ways is much more significant than stuff around my sexuality or gender identity is disability um, I have a hidden disability. Um, I have Crohn's disease and I've had uh, over a dozen operations and um, had my colon removed and I have a permanent stoma bag and will do for the rest of my life. And uh, believe you me, I might not look 50, but sometimes I feel like I'm 70 <laughs> <laughs> because of the disability as much as anything, you know, because, but you know, for me, that's all part of the gift. You know, this is the thing about discovering that though the dominant position, the dominant ideology, the di dominant view, patriarchy, whatever you want to call it, says that a whole bunch of us ain't good enough or are second raters, actually to discover that who we are is actually a place of gift, is a place of real power as well to actually push back against that and i'm not for a second underestimating trauma i am not underestimating the costs of living with this stuff 
it's wearisome. Um, and, you know, the kind of, you know, to use that technical term, microaggressions that I live are, are much less, far fewer than very many people, especially global majority people. But I live with it and it's tiring, isn't it? You know, it's just tiring to live with that. But to just be able to say, I am gift too, that's, that's a powerful thing. Maybe that just helps me fit, <laughs> give the impression that I'm a bit younger than I am. I don't know. <clears throat> <clears throat> Whoa. How do you go through all of that with a society that's as judgmental as the one that we are in, come up smiling and come on to insight and say, it's a gift? At, at great cost. And let's be clear here, this is a work in progress. I mean, if I said to you, you know, I don't mind acknowledging this, you know, because I think sometimes people think, oh, vicars, priests, they have to be happy all the time. You know, they're sort of jolly people and they have to jolly everyone else along. Well, yes, I do have responsibilities as a leader in my community, but I'm a human being too. And last week, if we'd have been chatting last week, you'd have found me in a place where I was just really struggling and utterly de-energised and feeling worn down. And the whole stuff around the pandemic has only added to that. You know, I'm someone who knows what it is to, to live with depression. And, and at the moment, I think generally I'm in an okay place. But for me, it's about this day. You know, it's just trying to sort of greet each day with enough hope and enough promise and to look for enough grace for that day. And I was chatting with someone this morning about this. Martin Luther, you know, the great theologian, although frankly, he held all sorts of horrible views, particularly about Jewish people. But, you know, he's a great theologian in the sense that, you know, he changed the world back in the 16th century. But one of the things that he said, which absolutely haunts me, but also inspires me too, as he said, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, still I would plant my apple tree today. What I think he's getting at is that even if we know what's coming tomorrow, we try and meet this day with what's required to, to build hope. Because I think sometimes, you know, when we plant our apple trees or at least bury the seed of something this day, it might look like tomorrow the world is going to end, but actually we discover when we get there that the roots are going deeper, that, that the tree is starting to grow. And, and so that's what it's about. So the gift thing is, it means a lot to me, but, you know, a lot of the time it's just about just trying to, to cling on some days and some days just to, to let the water hold me up. You know, to know that that it might be in a we might be in a very choppy sea. Life is just you know getting buffeted and blown around. But the safest thing to do is to to lean back and not start you know start sort of waving around. But actually, if we can try and have the courage to lean back into the wave, maybe that will carry us to the place of safety, the place of survival. You should be Dao, I don't know about a reverend, but that takes me nicely to my next question. Why did you want to become a reverend? Why did you want to the priest <laughs> business? <laughs> I didn't really want it. I so didn't want it, Roz. In my mid-twenties, which is when I got a sense of vocation, 
I was set on a different path, I think, really. I was I was looking at a career as an academic and working on a PhD on some dry as dust philosophy stuff. But here's the thing. At that point where I was actually just beginning to find out a bit more who, about who I was as the person I am, as Rachel, I began to have a, just a strong sense of being called to pray, actually. And one day I couldn't resist it any longer. And I got down on my knees and I said, God, if you are there, then I'm yours. Because I didn't really believe in God until I was 26. And God was there. And it changed my life, completely threw it up in the air. And that led me to leave the university setting, go and work on a very, very poor housing estate in Greater Manchester and begin to listen to a different call, a different demand on my life. I mean, that's the thing about, you know, God is I've spent a lot of my life trying to run away from God and certainly trying to run away from some false images of God, because I think there's some blooming terrible images of God out there. But then when, when you meet God, who is love, what are you going to do? That, for me, became a crisis moment. And I wanted to say yes. And saying yes meant testing out my sense of calling. It took me years to be ordained. Our first sense of calling at 27. I was ordained at 35. I had a lot of knockbacks. Were you I, fighting the calling? No, it was more that... I, <laughs> how do I put this? Because I have to be careful here because the church is is my employer in a sense. I think I was battling against a lot of prejudice, a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety in the church. So the church's fears, the church's yeah. anxieties, being yeah. dropped onto you. God, it's a bit like being black. Well, <laughs> that's the battle, isn't it? That you are it, fighting against a system that's telling you you are less than. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I want to be clear here, Roz, because I have to say it's been a, it's been a, a a big learning curve for me actually i want to say that whilst i've had to fight that system i very clearly haven't had to fight the system in the same way that a black person has mm. because there's a still there is this thing someone looks at me and they look at the color of my skin or they listen to how I speak or some of the words that I use, particularly in the church where it's a church thing is very middle class. And I can do that. I can do the middle class thing. And that does open doors. It does open doors. So I haven't had to fight a whole bunch of very specific battles that black and global majority people are still fighting. But. I think it's fair to say there was a bit of freak out when, you know, a trans woman comes along and says, I think God might be calling me to ordain <laughs> ministry. And they're going, what? What does this mean? You know, we, 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 uh, you know, we don't even, we're not sure you're a woman. Um, you know, and, and this was only, you know, this was around the time uh, when women were only just being ordained for the first time as well. So, I mean, with the amount of prejudice and rubbish women full stop faced back in the 90s about being ordained was terrifying i mean gosh you know speak to some of my black female colleagues there's a story 
about dealing with the prejudice against women and then the prejudice against being black. Gosh, I mean, that's terrifying, the pushback there. Thank you for acknowledging that. So some of the slowness with you getting to where you are was to do with the process within the church itself. But yeah, I think that that's part of that slowness was to do with dealing with the system that was freaked out by me. The other thing was just dealing with illness. You know, I became desperately ill at 29 with Crohn's disease, nearly died. It took me two years before I was in a position where I can even begin to enter the process again. I mean, I, I lost my job. Um, I lost my sense of who I was. I, I had to refigure who God was, because as far as I could see in my, in my head, I knew that God wasn't punishing me by making me ill, but in my heart, I felt that he was. And I think I had to dis rediscover a, a richer vision of who God is. Partly finding God in solidarity, you know, the God of the cross, but also discovering the riches of, of feminist theology as well. God as sister, as, as mother, as auntie even, you know. Some of these things which still seem very radical to this day to say out loud, but they need to be said. And yeah, just, just, just discovering the God who is with us in our struggles. Not the God who wants us to be good little girls or good little boys and be nice and obedient, but one who's struggling with us to overcome the rubbish. I told you should be Dal, as they say. Well, as we <laughs> say, mother of 10,000 things, mother of. I'm just saying. <laughs> whatever, whatever you say, Ross. I mean, I'm happy just being a priest, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to get through my day. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that when I mentioned your title to somebody, they felt the way I did. That's a lot of title, the Reverend Canon Dr. Rachel Mann. Can you break it down? What does it all mean? Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's a bit ridiculous, really, to be honest, Roz. It's worth saying that my parents take the mickey out of me. You know, they're just saying, well, what next? What, what are, you know, are you going to get a damehood or something? You know, just to add that on top. I mean, here's how it works. Because I would say that if you were, from a formal point of view, most people would just call me canon these days, you know, but the full... It, they're called honorifics, aren't they? So the reverend bit, that's what happens as a, a courtesy title when you're ordained. It's very specifically in the Church of England, but in many churches, someone will be known as the reverend. The canon bit is slightly hilarious. That is a title that is conferred through a cathedral. So it's it's a sort of, it's an honorary, it's an honorary role, which says that, the bishop of your diocese and your and of your cathedral wants to recognise your contribution to the life of the church. So there's lots of reverends. There are far fewer canons. And then, of course, the doctor is, is a reference to holding a, a, a PhD. And I guess back in the olden days, Roz, I would have been known as the Reverend Canon Rachel Mann. And you wouldn't make reference to the doctor bit, even though I've got a PhD. But these days, I mean, I didn't, you know, I, I thought I don't need to tell the world about my PhD. Then I saw everyone else doing it who's got a PhD. And I'm thinking, well, well, if they are, you know, 
And Why mine. shouldn't I? Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> show a bit of pride here, you know. Um, if you got it, flaunt it. Uh, <laughs> but it's all, I mean, uh, in one sense, they're all symbols of what we might call a pernicious system, arguably. You know, it's a bit like, I mean, I, people have very mixed feelings, don't they, about the British honours system? Yes. Very, very mixed feelings. And, you know, the whole canon thing, the reverend thing, it's all tied up with lots of privilege. I suppose the other side of it, and the bit part that I suppose I, I kind of sit comfortably with, is that it says something to the world if someone like me can be a canon that someone like me who uh you know comes from a, a rural working class background um who is a disabled queer trans that as part of my title when i'm just trying to do something for good because yeah, I'm as selfish as anyone else. You know, I'm as egotistical as anyone else. But I do try and do some good things. You know, I try and open doors. I try and sometimes knock down walls and fences so that others can actually rush across to, to get to where they should be. But if I can, if it helps that I can put that title, those titles before my name, and it means that some of the great and the good will go, oh, all right, we're dealing with someone who's, been honoured by the church then I can live with that you know I can value that I hear but it's it's a mess isn't it I mean you know in the same way that you know friends of mine have accepted honours from our honour system and they will use that to help others get ahead other people will say I want nothing to do with that because of its connection with empire and you know just setting people apart it's never going to be simple, I think. It's always going to be a bit messy. I think we all have to figure it out for ourselves. True enough. So what's the doctorate in? The what's doctorate? The dusty, <laughs> yeah, what's the dusty subject? <laughs> well, no, this, this uh, gosh, we're talking about something um, very, very specific. So this, uh, the, 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 the PhD is, I'm trying to remember the title here because it will give you a laugh. The Representation of Fecundity and Barrenness in the Poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Christina Rossetti, and the Bible. And it, uh, its subtitle is something towards a Christian feminist poetics. Did you notice the moment you said Barrett Browning? I went, <gasps> and not because of her love story with fellow poet Robert Browning, more her poetic narrative on events and contemporary political opinion. Wonderful. She's yeah. just, yeah, so much respect for her work. We can forget the last one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm a great... I, the four years I spent researching that degree were just... It was an absolute treat and a privilege. And I, I, love, I love Rossetti and Barrett Browning. Do you know what's really powerful about them both as 19th century writers is that uh, in so one sense, they had all loads of privilege. You know, they were upper middle class women they had a lot of privilege in their society and culture but they also had this profound levels of constraint because whereas working class women could get out and work 
you know, clues in the, in the title, I guess, and actually earn some money for themselves. People like Barrett Browning and Rossetti, they were expected to almost be like China dolls. And, you know, they were, you know, allowed to write poetry. But what they did was that they used the space that they had, the women's spaces that they created. Sometimes they're sewing circles, you know, the kind of things that probably we, we might think, oh, gosh, you know, that sounds all very middle class and polite and nothing's ever going to change there. Um, they used their sewing circles to to foment their quiet revolutions, to start, you know, pushing at the boundaries, to start challenging the fact that women couldn't vote or had no rights or to challenge slavery in the United States, which was a big thing for Barrett Browning, very particularly, you know, to actually be out there saying, you know, this, this, this is the biggest stain, the biggest sin in the world. And, you know, I just think that's just, I, I, I just, as you can hear, I'm very passionate about it. Yeah, I'm, as I said, I'm, I love her work. We'll come to the, we'll come to the book in a moment. Where do you sit on the, in the hierarchy for the church, Reverend Canon Doctor? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very low beer. I mean, although here's the thing, I suppose it depends on who you ask. It's worth saying in the church, the Church of England has got a very, very flat hierarchical structure. And there are very few steps between the lowliest cleric and the most exalted cleric in the land. That's one of the strange, it's one of the things that freaks a lot of people out. That, for example, a friend of mine who is a um, priest in London was walking round near uh, the Houses of Parliament one day. And, you know, there's this very grand member of the House of Lords walking along with one of the bishops who happens to sit in the House of Lords. And my mate just says, oh, hello, Richard. How are you doing to the bishop? And the Lord was what's going this utterly shocked. Because why would this lowly priest know someone in the House of Lords? Um, the Church of England is, you basically got a few bishops at, at the top. You've got your two archbishops then, uh, diocesan bishops and their bishop colleagues. And then pretty much the rest of us. And so I'm in the rest of us. I guess there are gradations within that. I mean, the fact that I am a, an honorary canon, uh, I'm an area dean, which means that I have a kind of pastoral first among equals responsibility for you know a whole probably sort of 25 clergy um means that i'm probably a, i'm a little bit further up the food chain than some i guess that when you talk about it's about in influences where it gets interesting ros in the church of england because although you know i'm not part of the the episcopal hierarchy the bishop's hierarchy i am aware that I do wield at least some measure of influence, partly because I'm a member of General Synod. You know, I'm an elected member of General Synod. And as you will have picked up from your recent visit to General Synod, I, can, I, I have permission to get up and, and make speeches. And I can make speeches that have an impact and which those in the, the leadership of the church can't turn their eyes from. They can't close their ears to. And as a writer, I have a, you know, a different kind of influence as well. 
it's a really strange thing is the Church of England. I mean, in one sense, there's no cent- there's no even a central bit of the Church of England. It's all these different little pockets and institutions and organisations. That's why it can be such a hell hellish place for safeguarding and for survivors to get the treatment that they deserve and have a right to expect because it's not clear who's in charge. So just for listeners and those who are new to my work at littleroad.org and Survivors Voices, when we speak of safeguarding and survivors, it's mainly in connection with child sexual abuse. But what you say about the hierarchy or lack of it is most interesting because to those of us in the outside world, it looks very different. That very neatly takes us to the church and Christianity. Because it doesn't appear that in the fullness of life, the church has a place. In many ways, when I come across people who are within the church and the way they speak, it feels like a subtle form of manipulation to get you on board. And I think it was Elliot that said, the church has palpable designs on people. (laughs) So people people in collars always wanted to convert me or convert one. On the other hand, you've got the liberalisation in some respects, and I have to narrow that down because of where we stand politically at the moment. But if you're a liberal, also known as a snowflake, you're concerned about equality, you're concerned about civil society and injustice, and we know the struggles with the church. You know, you look back and you the whole thing about women, trans, gay, black, you name it, it's there in the church. So what role does the church play in society today? Gosh, that's a, that's one heck of a question. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, let's start with what I think is a pretty bleak assessment and build from there up to something I think a bit more exciting. The bleak assessment is this, that uh, frankly, the Church of, church of England is, is an irrelevance, um, that we, we don't have a place that we have, not least because of our arguments about the status of women and the status of LGBT people, made ourselves a laughing stock. And because of the way in which we have re-abused uh, survivors of abuse from within the church, we're seen as a toxic organisation. And you know, when I think of it on those terms, we don't deserve really much sympathy. We, you know, we we deserve all of the appropriate probrium that gets directed towards us. And then there's another story. And this is the story which does fill my heart with with a lot of hope and 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 joy, actually. And it's this that in a. In a thousand places, in fact, in ten thousand, ten thousand places this day. There will be representatives of the church, they might be vicars, they might be lay people who are genuinely making a difference in people's lives. And it might be, as we do here in my parish, be through running a food bank. Now, we all probably have an opinion on food banks. In my ideal world, there would be no food bank. But we live in a world where there are food banks. And this spring and this summer, The local food bank here where I'm chair of trustees was the difference for some people between 
falling into complete destitution and getting through that week. There are churches this day which are getting in touch with the lonely and the bereaved. There are vicars who are making themselves available to hear other people into speech and help their stories be lifted up. There are lay people in General Synod who are fighting hard to ensure that survivors of a variety of abuses are going to get what they rightly and properly expect in terms of justice. The Church of England is at its best when it is local, in my experience. It often is a bit feeble because we're not what we were. But it still does that stuff. It serves. It loves. It makes time. And if I was going to get really theological about this, which is very, you know, I, I'm a theologian. It's, it's unsurprising if I do. I also want to say that somewhere in the midst of all the rubbish and in the midst of a serial ability to mess things up for ourselves as a church is this shining diamond of truth and beauty which says that this consumerist capitalist culture which says you are what you can buy you are valuable if you have money which says that you are significant if you can perform certain kinds of ways of being in the world so that this diamond of the gospel is saying nah each and every one of us in our particularity in our very particular bodies is the beloved of god the absolute beloved of God and carries not only the image of God, but the possibility of growing into the likeness of Christ. And you know what? That might say it is highfalutin, but I feel sometimes, you know, part of the poverty of the society in which we are now living is a lack of 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 a, an imaginary that speaks up for the dignity of actual human lives. That it's become normalised now to sort of treat, you know, if somebody doesn't have any money, if somebody is homeless, it's become normalised to say it's their fault somehow. It's like living in this sort of neoliberal dog-eat-dog world. And Christianity doesn't believe that. The church doesn't believe that, even if we don't always model it terribly well. And that's what I'm I cling on to. I'm glad you said that the church does not always model itself well. And victim survivors of childhood sexual abuse are a clear example. Now, I'm also in agreement with everything you just said, unreservedly. But for all the good the church may still do, society is in the age of Aquarius, in the age of the secret, in the age of the Da Vinci Code, Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra and Oprah. We're in the age of spiritualism. Yeah, I'm 100% spiritual and 3,000 years was it before Christ? You had Labzu walking the earth and hence we have the Tao Te Ching. So, why Jesus? Especially given that generally the church doesn't appear to be modelling the best Christ-like behaviour. 
I mean, well, I mean, gosh, that that could take, uh, you know, we could be here all all afternoon. Um, That's when we have the coffee with the rum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it comes down to this, is that Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. So what Jesus doesn't allow is for us to trick ourselves with a fantasy that we are better than we are, that it's okay for us simply... Um, not to engage either with the body, with the world, with reality. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, I'm, uh, you know, part of the package for me on this is that this isn't about a teacher. You know, Jesus isn't just a prophet or a teacher. The the sheer power of Jesus Christ as savior for me is that in him is the fullness of God. And that that very specific thing that he is a body that shows that you know, God comes into the world not as a powerful king, but as we hear at each Christmas, as a vulnerable babe in arms with no power, no power, literally no power except at best to elicit from us. A loving response but that this person who I believe is God also shows us that the way of love is likely to lead us into a place where people are gonna dislike us possibly uh, persecute us and in Jesus's case crucify us and that God is in all of that in the most dreadful and terrible place and yet and yet that is not not the end that it's not just about the resurrection ros this isn't just about you know um the final twist in the thriller <laughs> or um you know you, you the 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 final moment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where it's everything is all right again. It's also about what it represents about who God is, because here is God who has been used and dare I say it, and I say this with all due caution, has been abused by human violence and destroyed. What does this raised God show us well frankly if I were that person that you know if that happened to me when I was raised what I would want is revenge you know I'd want it's like I'm, I've come back and you know so you bastards killed me now I'm back and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna take you down it's like you know like a, a, a basically a, an American action movie you know, sort of um, just imagine if um, John McClane from Die Hard died and was brought back to life. He'd, he'd pick up a, an Uzi 9 millimeter and take out all the bad guys. What this God shows is that the scars and the wounds are still there. The risen Christ remains a body marked by trauma and violence and abuse. But this God survives is a survivor and in that survival and i'm not saying this is something i would never ever say this to a survivor 
I want to be clear here. I'm not saying, oh, you know, you need to be forgiving or anything like that. We all have to work this stuff out in our own time. But God shows that instead of seeking revenge in resurrection and survival, it's an invitation to reconciliation. Not without consequences, but to start again. So that, you know, what I'm working at through my life always is this dynamic of what it means to be incarnated, to live now, what it is to live with the reality of my own death and the very fact I will die. And actually I have died many, many deaths, of course. But who am I going to be called to be in the resurrection? Who am I called to be in the resurrections of my daily life? And I struggle with reconciliation. I struggle with forgiveness. But I feel God's invitation in Jesus to do that. And that's why, you know, I, I, I love Jesus's teachings. Of course I do. You know, he's a wise teacher. He's up, you know, Buddha is a wise teacher. Socrates is a wise teacher. Countless others. He's also a great prophet. But it really matters to me that he's the son of God. And that's why Jesus. I recall hearing Justin Welby saying that the average Christian is black female and lives on the African continent. Is that why the church is actually reviewing its policies and practices? Nobody goes anymore from the UK. Because basically it's in an institutional panic. So it thinks reform, 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 reform. Uh Actually, I think I can be pretty clear on that and say, no, it's not. What's actually much more at stake is the fact that the Church of England is the established Church of England, the established Church of England. In other words, it is a kind of state church. And one of the things that the Church of England has wrestled with for at least 100 years, if not longer is how does it relate to the people who actually live in England? And how does it reflect them? And so this might surprise you, I hope it won't, but there have been discussion, there were discussions in the Church of England, serious discussions about what we can do in terms of reform, about contraception, back in the 1920s and 30s, which is in some ways was decades ahead of many other churches. And, you know, it hasn't even begun to be explored properly in or wrestled with in the same level with in the Roman Catholic Church. And this is because, you know, the Church of England has to reflect about this stuff because in one sense it has to try and see how, how is it relating to what's going on in the world out there. And... It became very clear in 1920s, 30s England, just after the First World War, that people's families, relationships were beginning to change. And so you have to have that conversation. And similarly, when it comes to, say, women priests, those discussions have been going on since at least the 60s, very seriously since the 70s. It's quite interesting, of course, that matches some of the shifts in UK society 
from the 60s onwards where women's liberation, the second wave of feminism happens. So in some ways, a lot of the stuff that goes on reflects the conversations that are already happening in wider society because that's, that's part of the duty of the Church of England. Where it's all got a bit strange is that in wider society, a whole bunch of stuff around sexuality has shifted, of course, massively so since you know, the the 90s, really, when Section 28 was got rid of. The Church of England has got itself in an absolute mess because instead of trying to stay up, kind of say, how do we stay part of the conversation, what it decided to do in General Synod in about 1998 was pass a resolution that basically just restated what we might call the traditional pish position on men and women and on marriage and we got stuck there and my society's moved on and we've just got stuck and what we're trying to do now is catch up not necessarily so that it means that we will have equal marriage happening in church but so that we actually become kind of relevant to the conversation again well, um, they haven't even accepted the fact that people are gay well, I think you're right in terms of some of the official statements. That's true. What we're trying to do now is simply is to acknowledge the truth that there are really are LGBTQIA people and that we are of God. On, on transgender, I have no issues with trans whatsoever. I think if somebody wants to call themselves female, great, go for it. Somebody wants to call themselves a man, you know, masculine, go for it. I don't care. But I don't think that you can be a man and then say you can become a woman. They're two biologically different experiences, brain size, heart size, life experience, not just the plumbing, but the actual biology that goes with it, the actual DNA, XXXY. So I know you've gone through it. Talk to me. Yeah. I mean, I look, I'm not here to try and persuade you away from your position, although I do disagree, actually, with your your analysis, you know, um, which probably won't surprise you. I mean, I think it's just worth saying we probably need to historic put some of this in historical context. You know, when people say to me, it's very clearly the case that there are two sexes. I don't or... believe there are sexes. I think there is a range. Yeah. One and, and, you know, and as soon as and, and or that, you know, it's not really possible for a man to become a woman or a woman to become a man. What I want to do is to say, what on earth do we think we're talking about here? Because what tends to happen with a lot of that discussion is that it very rapidly reduces itself to what I would call a GCSE level of biology um, in which. There are clearly two very different um, uh, phenotypes or genotypes. Well, that works for GCSE biology. It doesn't really work when it comes to actual lived ex lived experience. Um, you can't have. You see, this is it. If you have been, if you are 
black and female, you have a certain life experience. Women have a certain life yes. experience that somebody who's had the privilege of being male then saying they are female doesn't have. And I don't, and I recognize, this is one of the things that I did when I did medical law, was that there are a range of human types, you know, male and female, man and woman being the extreme ends. But to be born in one way, and I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with gender change. I'm not talking about gender. I'm talking about wanting to own the biology, the sex of saying one is a woman. That is... Except, BC, this is where I, I think I need to, I will have to push back again just to say that, it, that those terms look very clearly distinct. In law, they've generally not been treated as distinct. Um, concepts of sex are really quite recent developments. I mean, they reflect, I mean, this might, I, I hope it doesn't surprise you, but it might surprise you that no one actually knew what a so-called, let's, you know, female body skeleton looked like until about the 17th century. You know, that distinctions about what sex is have become more rigorously defined but they are defined as part of a historical process so that pre-17th century there really was only one sex there were men and failed men if you were you know because that's that's what aristotelian biology says yes. now we say that that's crap of course we rightly say that that's crap but what it means is that we perhaps we need, if we historicize our analysis of bodies then what we need to recognize is that where we're at may look very very convincing through a very particular set of lenses to say well very clearly you know there are these two sexes and there's xx and there's xy but the truth is is that very few of us you know i mean here's the thing neither you nor i when we speak to each other we don't operate and relate to each other on the basis of our geno genomes or our genotypes. I don't say to you, Ross, can I just check that you're XX? Being a woman, being female even, which is often seen as the scientific term, these have a whole set of complex meanings that need to be contextualized. Now, what I think is true, and I've always acknowledged this, Ros, is that my experience of growing up where I was raised as a boy meant that I have a different set of experiences to someone who was raised as a girl. And that has brought with it certain kinds of privileges and advantages, which, if I'm going to be entirely honest with you, have very rapidly disappeared at the age of <laughs> 22, really. I mean, and I, you know, and I discuss, and I've spoken about this at great length to say, uh, I discovered that being a woman is really crap, actually, in our society. It sort of kind of sucks um, because nobody listens to you or pays attention. And, you know, you can go, for, you know, no, no, nobody hears your voice in the same sort of way. I'm not trying to ruin anyone's day by drawing attention to the importance of detail here. But I think part of what's going on with the sort of feminisms which emerged from the 90s onwards is to try and say, 
when we use words like man, woman, male and female, we need to be granular about it. We need to pay attention to the detail because, you know, as you've already acknowledged, growing up black and female does bring with it a whole set of experiences which are going to be similar to but radically different from someone who's white, upper middle class, female or someone like me who was raised, you know, white, male and who transitions later. But I believe that there's this in family resemblance in, in experience. But the only way that you can sort of hold to the notion of, of us all being women, which I believe we can, is by recognising the granular details. And, you know, one of the things that horrifies me most, and I've just found so upsetting as, you know, someone who spent 30, over 30 years now studying feminism and queer stuff, is the number of white middle-class women who think they get to define what being a woman is. Part of the reason that in the States there is this thriving, dynamic theological tradition called womanism um, is because it's about African-American women saying, you don't tell us what it is to be a woman. My experience of being a woman is different to yours. It has certain intersections, but don't just say that we're all the same, you know, because how we experience our bodies is radically different. And, and you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to stretch this point because I know some, some trans people really major on this. Um, I, I don't know if I, I, I really want to, but how I have experienced masculinity and being coded as a boy was basically as trauma and that is not the same as how a lot of men experience it um now some men do but it, what it means is that I, I suppose what i'm saying is that my experience may not be precisely as it's stereotyped to be as oh you you were raised as a as a raised male and therefore you know and you lived your body as you've experienced your body as male and all of that how i've experienced my body is as a trans person from a very very early age and it was bloody terrifying most of the time unhorrifying you see i would look at something like that and i'd say isn't that society being too rigid and this is one of the reasons i'm a hood feminist or intersectional feminist it's because i think we are too hard on the expectations of what masculinity is it's this cold concrete cage that we expect people to behave a certain way and i think if we release that then people can be who they want to be which is the essence of life and the, and, and there's truth in that and, you know, I, I grew up in a time which had a fair amount of rigidity in it, you know, and you know, it's one of the questions that has been, you know, recently Jan Morris, um, you know, one of the pioneers of the trans experience died. And she said she reckoned that as society became less rigid in its gendered roles and identities, trans people would disappear. But what we've discovered is actually, um, and to my surprise, to a certain extent, 
a growing confidence amongst trans people. More people discovering their transness and their non-binariness. So I'm not sure it is just about the rigidities of masculinity. I mean, I think masculinity is, is one of the absolute curses of our kind of inherited patriarchal culture. It's an absolute curse. But I think it's really complex, you know, to the point where trans people are just part of the facts. So it's not that we're somehow the product of a binary world or of patriarchy and somehow, you know, because actually I, that's what I would find, and I find incredibly offensive, actually. I want to say that trans people have always been here and trans people have existed in matriarchal societies, in non-hierarchical societies since the beginning of time. You know, and it might be that ultimately we need to find new language that goes beyond the binary. That's what non-binary people are trying to do, I guess. And I'm learning about that. Um, but, you know, what's been at stake with my body from the earliest age was my body ain't right. And, I, you know, I could be really blunt here about some of the things that I wanted to do with my body. Just the sheer horror of it. And I, I give thanks for the gift that I live in a time when it's been possible to bring to bear the kinds of shifts that mean that I can live a flourishing life. But, you know, being trans, for me, it's just, it's, it's really, it's, it's really no different to pretty much everyone. You know, we're all of, you know, we, we all of us um, have bodies which we manipulate and alter and shift, you know, that none of us uh, you know the concept of the natural is a problematic category anyway sorry you've heard me get very passionate i'm so glad you pushed back i do see sex and gender as two different things and i see the sexes across a spectrum with xx and xy being the extremes but i'm grateful that you've given me something to go away and think about but i do have a second issue which springs from this we're in a society that says people can self-determine who they are. A man can be a woman, a woman can be a man. And it has led almost naturally to white people wearing black oppression and black culture like a stole, throwing it off when it's no longer convenient or when their fraud has been identified. Black people can't throw off the mantle of race and oppression. And there's a subtext here. <laughs> we wouldn't even be allowed to pretend that we're white. And this is happening here and now. People will say it's the same thing they are self-identifying. That they might be white, but they're really black. How do you push back from that argument? Because seemingly, they sound like the same thing. And where white people have done it, I want a better word than punishment, but there hasn't been any consequences. There hasn't been any particular pushback. Mm. I mean, I think there should be, absolutely should be, pushback i mean i think it looks like we're talking about like with like but i'm not sure we are and i think it's it's partly to do with the way in which um you know what's what flow i mean i i, I you know i can only speak from from a, a very particular trans experience of you know just that sense of profound dysphoria from uh, an early age and just the sense of of not, of well, I mean, you know, I don't want to go into details about this, but knowing I, I would not have got much further than twenty-two or twenty-three, 
in this life without transition um and just the sheer cost of that there, there was no win in all of that this involved you know placing everything my whole family my life career uh, in such a place that you know if i didn't transition i was done and in transitioning i was nearly done if you see what i'm saying oh gosh. whereas whereas there is something about the performance of blackness that certain kind of white people want to affect that strikes me to do that's to do with a whole nexus of beliefs about blackness and about claiming a position that it just sounds completely screwed up to me and uh, i mean i'd i'd love to have conversations with the likes of the that us woman who um you know is the most famous example rachel dolezal uh, that's it i you know i'd love you know what what a conversation that would be to sort of just try and get into that story where this isn't about someone negotiating you know the specific the specifics around transition and the way in which that actually does belong to and you know i often talk about it's about you know people talk about trans history now just as you know rightly we talk about black history and lgbt history about how all of this fits into a whole history of human reality that you know i mean genuinely you know trans people have been around since the year dot but the way in which with someone like rachel dolezal there's this sort of i want to claim a position in the community i want to and and a kind of a delusional lack of self-awareness wrestling with there's there's it's the absence of a sort of wrestling with identity that's so i mean it's offensive in itself what she did but it's the lack of the kind of internal narrative. There's a sort of lack of wrestling. The fact that her, her own family were just saying, you know, basically, Rachel, you, what are you doing? You know, what the actual, you know, what is this about? And about trying to claim a position in an organisation that makes me think that, I mean, I, you know, I think we need to do a lot more work on this, but this is not like for like, as it were. This is, a, this is about... This is about someone working with a kind of reverse racism here, which fetishizes blackness as a certain kind of escape from someone sort of crushing privilege. I don't read the trans experience. I mean, just spending so much time with so many trans people about that. You know, you'll get just a whole spectrum of people. In, you know, that's the thing about being trans these days is that there was once upon a time there were people like me and only people like me. I mean, essentially, you know, to the point where, I mean, maybe I, I'm, I am sort of belong to a, just a different generation where my understanding of transition is about wanting, genuinely wanting to have, uh, you know, to be conformed to the reality of my of what society would say is it is to be a woman as as much as possible why would you want to do that it's because because i just can't because 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 there's just because it's survival it's a you know i mean the thing is this is not rational 
This is at the depths of being. This is the sort of thing that, you know, this is about the very ground of reality. I mean, I don't want, oh, of course I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, you know, I, I, I've spent, got to bear in mind, I spent a number of years in the company of men, kind of, as it were, undercover, looking like one of them. And gosh, the power that men have. You know, <laughs> why would you want to be a woman? It's ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. You know, so the very fact that someone like me exists is a to It tells me it says it's something at least. It's it, whether however we read it, it's a really powerful thing. But most trans people aren't like me. You know, one of the things that's worth saying, Ros, is that medical support is treatment. That was powerful and thought provoking. Thank you. Staying with the church and changes, I noticed the Anglican apology for its role in slavery and spoke of William Wilberforce and John Newton with great pride. Abolition was complex. Just because somebody was anti-slavery didn't mean that they were pro-black. Even back then, slaves were accused of taking white people's jobs and abolition was paid dirt for slave owners. So I wondered where the pride came from for John Newton. John Newton, the former slave ship captain, turned minister and composer of the hymn Amazing Grace, didn't compose Amazing Grace. He wrote the words to a Negro spiritual. And that hit black people to the core. It's a song of our suffering. And his journals point to the fact that he joined other sailors in gang raping black women and girls. You know, the average slave was around about 13. When I hear these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I see Newton and white aggressors like him expressing regret for their anti-black brutalities. But it's centred on their story and their redemption. It's not the story of their victims or the violence perpetrated on their victims. Plus, he never wrote the tune. Where did the pride come from for John Newton? How can you exalt somebody like him? I guess that uh, white men are very good at centering their own emotions and, uh, and story. It's too easy, isn't it? Um, it's interesting times we live in. I think that 10 years ago, many people would have said something like this. And got to bear in mind, the Church of England is at least 30 years behind where everyone else is. So it still hasn't got up to the 10 year behind bit. Um, 10 years ago, many people would have said John Newton, he did all these terrible things, but he had a moment of redemption, time of redemption. And he also changed his position. And that is a kind of in the scales of things that will sort of. Uh, weigh it in the in the direction of this this guy is really crucial because he may have done individually terrible and wicked things but in terms of the impact on millions of people you know that surely counts in his favor where we are now is not quite there is it because that sort of position is just seen as a sort of feeble centrism you know, letting off the white guy who's done wicked and terrible things because he did some nice things isn't good enough. I mean, where I, if I was coming at it from a literary point of view, 
And again, I'm really cautious about saying this. I'm probably going to get cancelled for saying this, aren't I? No, we don't Just want you to get cancelled. Well, except that, you know, nobody knows. I, I mean, that's what the anxiety that people have now is that it's better to say nothing um, because, the you know, Amazing Grace is an extraordinary hymn. I mean, it seems to me, you know, that it, it you know, you, those words resonate and they've resonated for billions of people, I think. Is it possible to say, as certainly a literary scholar would say, that you can take that that hymn and separate it from the creator of it? You know, I remember teaching a uh, teaching a literature course a few years back, where a member of the class refused to read the poetry of Ezra Pound because he was a fascist. Now, there's two no two ways about it. Ezra Pound supported Mussolini between 1940 and 1944 and was put on trial for all of that. The poems we were looking at were written in the 1920s, but this person said, I am not going to read those poems because he's a fascist. But those poems that he's written are in some ways remarkable poems. I don't, what do you think, Ross? I mean, is it possible to I sense that maybe you think it's not possible to separate the creator from the created thing i would consider another person's point of view if i didn't agree with them i think that people i don't agree with can come up with interesting points but i wouldn't exalt them i would be very careful not to because we like celebrity and popularism whatever that means to you so anything i do with somebody's whose views are vile would come with a caveat. And I think it's a reminder that great art can be made by terrible people and that talent and celebrity can be weaponized in the most atrocious of ways. Just look at Trump, a racist catapulted to presidency by the media. He's everything one ought not to be, but he's still got 42 million votes. That's a hell of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's where I yeah. think I, I sit on that one. Yes, yes. So, gosh, that one heck of a question, Ros. And that's why it's the perfect time to go to the quick fire round. Are you ready for the quick fire round? Right. What's the best thing about being a woman? Oh, is there anything good? <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask a black woman that. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. The hardest thing about being a woman? Not being uh, respected just for being alive. You're going to love this one. Do women need men? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Can a white person write a black character? Oh, gosh. Yes, but probably badly. Are men just a little above women? No. What is your favourite pastime? Uh, sleeping. What is your favourite book? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I'd better say the Bible, hadn't I? <laughs> <laughs> it should have been one you wrote. <laughs> What's your best feature? Uh, my smile. Hey, me too. What does love feel like? Uh, warm and gushing and glorious oh i like that 
I might pull on that. <laughs> Louis, um, have you ever stolen a sweet from the sweet shop? Yes. What was it? A, a, a mojo, a penny chew. It's, this is a long time ago, about 1974, something like that. They used to do these little mojo. Okay. Sweet. Can you romantically love two people at once? Uh, I don't know. If you could tell your 15-year-old self one thing, what would it be? It will get better. What is your view on having mental health as part of the primary school curriculum? Absolutely. We all have a mental health and we need to be open and upfront about this. If you were a carer, what would make you scared to go into somebody's home as a carer? The thought that they might... Uh, Physic and fit well, actually, verbally abuse me on the basis of how I looked. Um, I'm afraid to say I've just known I've known too many carers who've been physic uh, verbally abused because they look or sound different. No less than one, no more than three. Who would you most like to have dinner with? J.K. Rowling, because I disagree with her. Um, on so many things i do disagree with her i disagree with her but i think that we'd find i want to find out why why we disagree with one another um who else would i want gosh um judith butler um a, a u.s uh uh philosopher yeah, so we'll take those two. That gosh, that would be an interesting dinner party. Favorite <laughs> quote? My favorite quote. Um, uh, I always struggle to remember quotes. Um, how about this? This is from Judith Butler. Gender is a copy without an original. That's deep, isn't it? Two social justice causes that are important to you. Human dignity, human rights. Um, so the sort of amnesty stuff um and um food poverty addressing food and housing poverty you'll be pleased to know that this is the final question and dear listeners it is the question from shane that you keep writing me about shane didn't give a question so shane's question is <laughs> what is the question was did not ask you that you really hoped she would not ask you Oh, that's that's just such. Oh my gosh, Roz! I just don't know. I, <laughs> oh, um. Here's again. Why? Why? Um. Why am I sat in front of a set of curtains for a stage? Could you leave me with a question to ask the next person sitting in the hot seat? What gives you hope in a seemingly hopeless world? That's deep. That's what I do. That's all I do. I'm, I, I'm, I'm like fake deep, I think. That's what Not I am. really. I heard about your degree, okay? That's real deep. <laughs> Dusty and deep. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight. I honestly mean keep in contact, please. I'd be delighted to. It's a wrap. 
Remember, you can catch all my broadcasts and never miss a show. I'm on all the major podcast platforms. So press the follow button, whether it's above or below. And as I leave the show, I'm playing out with the world's best-known Negro spiritual, misappropriated by the slaver-turned-abolitionist Newton, though the records still don't show. It's the heart and soul of the African who was stored in the decks like chattel below. Be gentle with yourself.
is Insight with Roz, a radio broadcast brought to you on podcast by I'mJustSaying.com, independent of the good opinion of others.